and welcome to this week's podcast. This is Josh Carlson with Hilltop Community Church, and I just want to say we're really glad that you joined us today. If you're new to the church, make sure to visit us online at hilltopchurchnv.com and fill out one of the online connection cards. We'd love to get connected with you and just say hello. While you're there, you can also find out more information about the church, get connected with Bible studies, submit prayer requests, and even find other sermons on the website as well. Now, make sure that you have your coffee, have your Bible, and your notepad ready to go, because we're about to get started with today's message. The passage this morning, Revelation chapter 19, is the return of the king. Jesus comes back. I actually made myself watch the Lord of the Rings movie, The Return of the King, yesterday. Boy, is that long. Um... I was like looking for something else to do, but I was also looking for imagery within it of what, what is this, is there a tie here to the scriptures? And there are several places where the imagery and the patterns hold, but uh, there's a lot of places where uh, who Jesus is and what he does at his return is, is very unique. It's hard to grab hold of. Um, and uh, I'm actually going to encourage you today as we go through this passage, I'm going to challenge your imagination a little bit to, uh, to imagine a world where Jesus has returned. Um, I'm going to do that with you in a little bit more detail in a minute. But as we get into Revelation chapter 19 and then next week chapter 20, these are chapters that um, Christians have different viewpoints on. Um, and so, like, if you grew up in Catholic churches with strong ties to uh, Augustinian teaching or an American church with roots in Reconstructionism, you probably grew up in a church that had a post-millennial viewpoint. And what a post-millennial viewpoint, millennium being a thousand years, we'll, we'll get into that in more detail next week, but a thousand years, well, the view of the post-millennialists is, is that... Uh, the church is now spreading the gospel. We're sharing the good news. The church is moving across the earth. Um, and then what's going to happen is that the world will become Christianized. The millennium or uh, a period of perfection will take place on the earth. And then Jesus will return at the end of the millennium. That's the post-millennial viewpoint. Uh, an all-millennial viewpoint, if you grew up in a denomination that sprung out of Reformation churches, a uh, mainline denomination that came from the Reformation, uh, some Catholic views hold this, uh, circles hold this view as well. But the all-millennial view is that the, we live in the millennium now. And so it's not an actual thousand-year reign, but we live in a realized millennium right now. So when Jesus died on the cross, the millennium started. Satan was bound, uh, and his influence over the world is hindered at the moment. And then the world is going to get worse and worse. And then at its worst, Jesus will return, much like what he says in Matthew chapter 24. And so that's the amillennial viewpoint. The premillennial viewpoint, if you grew up in a non-denominational church or a Baptist church, you probably grew up with this view. Um, and what this is, is that Jesus, he comes... He comes once for all, but he comes once for his church. So at the rapture, 2 Thessalonians chapter 4, Jesus comes and he comes for his church. He raptures his church. And then when he comes his second time here in Revelation chapter 19, he comes with his church. Okay, And so the view on this is that God has separate programs for Israel and the church, and God is now operating through the church, but he's going to rapture the church, operate through Israel one more time for seven years during the Great Tribulation, and then at the end of the Great Tribulation period, he's going to return with his church to judge sin and death and evil once and for all. The promises to David and Abraham are yet to be fulfilled, and so God is going to do that in this future time. So Jesus returns before the millennium, premillennial. 
Um, now, what I want to say about this is that there are good Christians who love God, who have a saving relationship with God, and take the Bible serious in all of these viewpoints. Okay, um, And so this is not a salvation issue. Uh, the, the view that we have or that you have, maybe you and I wouldn't see eye to eye. Maybe you're all millennial. I tend to be premillennial. Um, and then the other thing I'll say is even within these views, there's nuances. Um, but uh, maybe, maybe we have different viewpoints on this, but these are not salvation issues. No one is saved or condemned based upon their understanding of the book of Revelation or the millennium. Um, now, that said, our view of the book of Revelation and the millennium, it will cause us to view life a little bit differently, to take different stances on things. But that said, what Christians should be known for is not our theological infighting, but our love for each other, right? So I'm more interested in us coming to an agreement of who Jesus is and what he has done for us and that he's returning than I am about proving that I'm right or you're wrong um, in regards to the book of Revelation and the millennium. And I think that's what we should be known for as Christians, okay? So I wanted to share those views, give you a little bit of thought on that. Uh, so as Christians, we, we should be able to come together on these things. The other thing that I would say is your viewpoint on the millennium is not a great place to start with a non Christian. If you're trying to introduce somebody to Jesus, this is not where I would recommend going. Um, on, I have this viewpoint of the millennium and my brothers and sisters on the other side of the fence are wrong. That's not where I would start. Um, where I would start is there's some really compelling speech about who Jesus is in this chapter. Um, the second set of verses that we look at in this chapter, this is really compelling about who Jesus is and why we need a relationship with him. And so that's where we want to guide people to, is to the person of Jesus, to the word of God, and then let them work out with the spirit of God their beliefs on secondary theology, okay? Um, and so if you'll do me a favor right now, actually, this is, I want to challenge your imagination right now. Close your eyes with me um, and imagine with me Imagine a world where there's no political infighting. Imagine a world where truth is very clear. Not convoluted, not muddy, but truth is very clear. Imagine a world where every human being valued other human beings. Not just those like them, but all human beings. Imagine a world where every human being was a good steward of what God has given them. They're looking out for their fellow man and woman. They're looking out for those who are without. They're caring for the creation. Imagine a world where there's a leader who always has your best in mind. He's never trying to deceive you. He's never trying to take advantage of you. There might not even be taxes. Imagine a world where what is good is always upheld and what is bad is always called out for what it is. Imagine a world where Jesus rules and reigns. That's, you can open your eyes, that's what the book of Revelation, particularly these chapters, is inviting us to do. It's challenging our imagination. Um, now, when, when we were in the middle of COVID, did you have a good imagination about the future? 
That was hard, wasn't it? It was hard to have a good imagination about people that we knew. It was hard to have a good imagination about our government. It was hard to have a good imagination about the future. And, and we're called as Christians to constantly be seeing God's renewal process, to constantly be seeing, be seeing where God would take us. You know, what's your imagination for yourself? When you think about yourself in a year, three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years, what's your imagination for yourself? What about your spouse or your children? And what about the people that are a part of your small groups or your Bible studies? How would you imagine a non-believing coworker? What's your best imagination for that person? And this is what Revelation is calling us to do. It's challenging our imagination of what life can be, of what I can be, of what you can be, of what God is intending for us to be. And so join me here in, in the first verse of Revelation chapter 19. It says, after this, and that phrase in the Greek is metatauta. After I, after I saw this, then I saw this. And so what the writer of Revelation, the apostle John is doing, is he's receiving one really long vision with a series of things that he's seeing. So it's after this, after this, after this. And the after this at this point is he's explained sort of the beginning of the great tribulation in Revelation chapter 17. And then he's ex explained the end of the great revelation in chapter 18. So he's saying, after the end of these things, then I heard something like a loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven. So just a huge group of people that are saved throughout all of God's plan of salvation. And they're saying, hallelujah. Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. Because his judgments are true and righteous. Because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality. If you haven't been with us the last few weeks, the notorious prostitute is a representation for a false religious system that guides people away from trusting God and into trusting themselves or some other created thing. Um, and sexual immorality is an is a indication of the idolatry, of worshiping something other than God. And so it says that he's judged that, that system. And he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. The other thing that false religion does is it, go, it goes not only after God and his understanding of truth, but it goes after his people. A second time they said, hallelujah. Her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders representing God's people during the church age and the four living creatures who are angelic beings that worship God in his throne room, they fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. Uh, the word amen, we say it all the time. Uh, the word amen is a Hebrew word that's transliterated into Greek. It means faith or to be firm or to be secure. So when we pray at the end of a prayer, we say in Jesus name, amen. In Jesus name, I trust that this is firm and secure. It's, a, it's based upon who he is and what he's done that I trust that my prayers are heard. Hallelujah, at the end of verse four there. A voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all his servants and the ones who fear him, both great and small. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, like the rumbling of a loud thunder saying, hallelujah, 
because the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. And so the anticipation for Jesus' return is building. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure. Now, when you hear the imagery here of a bride, uh, this was something that was used within the Old Testament of God's relationship with Israel. He was to be the bridegroom, uh, she was to be the bride. Within the Old Testament, the imagery of the bride is that like the prophet Hosea marries a prostitute Gomer and it's supposed to be a word picture, uh, not a word picture, but a life picture of what God goes through with the nation of Israel. He's married to her, he cares for her, but she's constantly giving herself to another. Uh, in the Old Testament, the, unfa- the bride is unfaithful because of her works. That's the idea, that God's people are unfaithful because of her works. Within the New Testament, the bride is, uh, is holy and righteous because of the groom's work on her behalf, because of Christ's work on her behalf. And so in the Old Testament, the bride is unholy because of her works. In the New Testament, the bride is clean and righteous and pure because of Christ's work for her. And that's the imagery that God is providing for us. Paul actually says in Ephesians chapter five uh, that the same way that a husband is to love his wife and the wife is to respect her husband is a grander picture of what's going on between Christ and the church, that Christ is sanctifying us and making us holy. He's understanding us and washing us with the word. He's giving himself for us so that we can be upright and holy. He's constantly pouring from himself to us so that we can be lifted up and made righteous and holy. And then we respond to his love with respect and honor, right? That's the picture that the marriages that we're a part of on earth should be showing us of what God longs to do for us. And so she's given fine linen. Uh, the, the, the idea here is of righteousness. For the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. And one of the other things that we see is that if you're in connection with Jesus, if you're in relationship with him, then good work will come out of you. Uh, if, we're, if we're living with him, if we're trusting him, if we're honoring him, if we're following him, then these righteous acts will show up in our lives. He is the source of these things, as it said in Verse three, or verse two, or verse one, actually, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. He is the source of these things, and He shares them with us. Verse nine. Then He said to me, "Right, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb." He also said to me, "These words of God are true." Uh, the marriage feast of the Lamb. This is uh, something that when Jewish people heard this, they would have thought of the way that a Jewish wedding was carried out. Like we have our ways within uh, our Western society, and we maybe rent out some place or go to a church, and there's a short ceremony. If you got to, you know, if I do the ceremony, it's going to be 15 minutes or less. Um, and uh, because nobody came here to listen to me talk on at a wedding, it's it's about the bride and the groom and the joining together. And then we go away to another place maybe, and there's a party, um, and there's a celebration and dancing, and there's food and there's drink and there's, everybody's having a really wonderful time. And that's how we would do it here. But then the bride and groom, they disappear at the end of the night and they're gone. Within the Jewish way of it, the the groom would have made a special approach to his bride. She would have actually been carried to him. And it was shown that it was his choice, his effort, his work to bring his bride to himself. 
Uh, it, it was a party that didn't just last for a couple hours, but there was just ongoing for five to seven days. They would have been feasting and celebrating the union between these two people. Um, the bride didn't plan the party, but she prepared herself for it. Um, so all of this imagery that would have been laid into a, a Jewish wedding, uh, we might miss out on it. But those are the things that's being communicated to us, that Jesus is pursuing us. He's making a special attention to gather us to himself, to lift us up, to unite himself to us, to uh, celebrate the union that he has with us, that it's his effort, his wealth, his movement towards us that causes the union to take place. And we don't prepare that but we prepare ourselves for it with gratitude. So that's the marriage feast of the lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, this angel, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Uh, there are many times where an angel shows up and people ha might have a tendency to worship the angelic being. This angelic being says, don't do that. That's, that's what Satan did. He wants your worship. I don't. I want you to worship God. And then he says, worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That is a really interesting phrase. Uh, the, 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 the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So anything that we read about future events, God proclaiming this is what's going to happen, Jesus is the central figure and the point of it. That's actually one of the dangers of systematic theology, of us saying, you saying, oh, I'm all millennial, and I'm saying I'm premillennial, and then we forget to talk about Jesus. He's the spirit of the prophecy. He's the point of the book of Revelation, not whether or not I have timing right. And so these verses, one through 10, they're often described as the hallelujah chorus. We see hallelujah show up four times in these verses. Uh, it's a Hebrew word that means praise Yahweh, God's Old Testament name. Um, it's used over and over again in the Old Testament. What's interesting is this is the only place in the New Testament that that word is used in these verses here, these four times. You won't find it anywhere else. It's unique to this spot. And so as we look at this, what are they praising God for? They're praising that he has judged the false religious system for killing his people, that he has brought vengeance on these people is actually the language that they use, which is interesting because we're actually encouraged not to take vengeance, right? Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, and we're to entrust ourselves to the Father so that when someone wrongs us, what we're to do as Christians is not return evil with evil, but instead do good to them. Right? And the only reason we can do that is because we trust that vengeance belongs to God. And it's either going to be taken care of one of two ways. Either in this case, those who are unrepentant towards Jesus Christ and his kingdom are going to receive the consequence of their ways, or those people are going to repent and trust Jesus, and then the consequences are poured out on him. But either way, my job is to say, God, you've got this. I'm not going to return evil for evil. So when somebody does harm to me, I'm not going to harm them in return. When somebody speaks ill of me, I'm not going to speak ill in return. I'm going to entrust myself to him who judges justly. Because in the end, vengeance is his. And he will, he will cause all things to be righted. Every wrong will be righted. There'll be, the consequence will be paid either by his son on the cross or by the individual in their rejection of his son on the cross. The other thing we see is that this judgment is final and eternal. The smoke rises up forever and ever, and so this false religious system and those who practice it will never uh, exist again. 
that members of Jesus' church, uh, they worship him for his character and actions and angelic beings spur this worship on. Um, maybe, maybe that's the imagination that you need to kind of consider. Um, that there will come a time where every wrong will be righted. I will stand before my maker and I will praise him for his character and his actions. And there'll be angelic beings inviting me to join the song. Uh, this group of people, they celebrate how God has cleansed and set apart a people for his own possession. There will be a time where we will stand without sin, without death, without evil, and praise God for what he has done for us. That's the hallelujah chorus. But again, Jesus is the focus of all prophecy. And so verse 11 takes us right there. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True. And with justice, he judges and makes war. Uh, the white horse, we've seen the white horse before in the book of Revelation. Remember, the Antichrist rode in on a white horse. And what the Antichrist does, anti could be against, so he's against the true Messiah, Jesus. But it's also the idea if he wants to replace the true Messiah, Jesus. And so what does he do? He emulates what Jesus would do. Jesus rides in on a white horse to conquer. And so the Antichrist says, look, here I am. I'm on the white horse, I'm here to conquer. And so there's a kind of a reminder for us to not fall prey to that, to false messiahs that would lead us to believe that in them, not Jesus, uh, we can have what we need. Verse 12, his eyes were a fiery, fiery flame and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And so if it wasn't clear to you, the rider on the white horse is Jesus. Let me tell you some things that this passage tells us about him. The white horse is, again, triumph over the forces of wickedness. So he rides in. Remember, his first coming, how does he enter into Jerusalem? On the back of a donkey. He's humble. He's mild. He's going to be the Lamb of God. Here he rides in on the white horse because he's coming in his glory, his splendor, his kingship, and he's here to rule and reign. And so he is both the lion and the lamb. He's faithful and true. He's just in judging and making war. Uh, that when Jesus makes war against these nations, he has the right to do so, and it is right to do so. Right? It, it not only is what he can do, it is what he should do. And so he rides in and he makes war against the nations that are causing people to worship uh, the beast and the, take the mark of the beast and the image of the beast and falling for these false understandings of who God is. His eyes are like a fiery flame. He's an all-knowing judge. Jesus sees everything. He understands our sin. He knows our sin. He knows what's going on on this earth. He knows what's broken on this earth. And when he comes, when he returns, his eyes will be a fiery flame. And remember when he's before the disciples, he's talking to Nicodemus, and he tells him that he didn't come to judge the world, but to give his life a ransom for many. Well, when he returns a second time, his eyes are a fiery flame, and the judgment has actually already taken place because they've rejected Jesus. 
Jesus as the Messiah. That's actually what he says to Nicodemus, uh, that if you reject Jesus, you have judged yourself already. And so when Jesus returns, his fiery eyes will cause that to come to light. Uh, The other thing is that as a follower of Jesus, we can live our lives in a way that, that doesn't honor him, that doesn't follow him. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that, that we can build, well, there's only one foundation to build on, that Jesus is that foundation, but how we build will be tested. And so if we build with our own works and our own efforts in our own ways, Jesus' fiery eyes will judge that and it will be consumed. It will have no reward. But if we build on him in his ways, if we trust him and we're following him and we're building our lives in a way that honors him, then that will actually stand the test of time and will be rewarded. So for the unbelieving, this is a statement of uh, your rejection of Jesus and uh, your unwillingness to trust him and your, your, your belief in yourself rather than in him to save yourself, that puts you in a position of, of condemnation. For the Christian, it's a reminder that we are saved, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but the manner of your life will be judged. And either it will burn up or it will be rewarded. There are many crowns on his head. That's an indication that he is Lord of all. Not just me, not just you, not just those who have said we trust you, Jesus, but he is Lord of all. He has a name that no one knows except himself, so that's something secret that we'll find out later. But then it also says that on his leg is the, a name that's written, and he is the, the word of God, and then later, well, the, the, on his thigh is the king of kings and lord of lords. But he also says that his name is the word of God, and that's the logos theos, that he is uh, what has brought everything into being. He is the uncreated creator, that by God's word, he created everything, including me and you. And then Jesus is that same one. He is the logos theo. theo He's ineffable and undescribable. He is the maker of heaven and earth. It says that his robe is dipped in blood, and that has the idea of him being both a judge and a savior. So his robe being dipped in blood, uh, there are those who are judged and condemned, and their blood is on his robe. But then he is also a savior because there are those who are not judged or condemned, and they're saved because of his blood on their behalf. Uh, He commands an army uh, on white horses wearing white linen. This is a victorious people of holiness who follow Jesus as king. Um, You and I, remember with the viewpoint that I'm sharing with you, Jesus comes and he, he raptures his church. He comes for his church. And here at the return, he comes with his church. So we're actually riding with him dressed in white. We're part of this battle. And I think that's interesting because some of you said just now, I don't want to be a part of a battle. Do they need medics or like cooks? Um, And then there were others of you that were like, let me get my gun. Um, And I think that says something about your personality. But the point here is that the sword comes from his mouth and judgment proceeds from the truth that he speaks. We ride with him, but he is the one who conquers. It says that he holds an iron rod or a scepter. Uh, a scepter would have been a symbol of supreme power and authority. So he is the one with supreme power and authority. 
Uh, the wine press of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. This is the complete destruction of his enemies. In Revelation chapter 14, it said that Jesus would cause this wine press uh, um, to, to go, to be trod, and that the blood on the field would be up to the bridles of the horses. The idea is that this is a final, complete judgment of this world system that rejects him um, and works against him. The name on his robe and on his thigh, a lot of people get confused about this. That would have been a common placement for a battle emblem. Riding a horse on his robe and then on his thigh would have been a common place for a battle emblem. And then he is the king of kings and lord of lords. And so this is the fulfillment of the long hoped for messianic ruler. And what I would encourage you, maybe challenge you to do as you look at these 12 things that this says about Jesus, is there anybody else like this? And that's what we need to see here, the uniqueness. God gave his one and only unique son so that we could be saved. Any who believe in him would have eternal life. But when he returns, his one and only unique son does so to judge everything that is evil and bring about a new state. Verse 17, then I saw an angel standing in the sun and he called out in a loud voice saying to all the birds flying overhead, come gather together for the great supper of God so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders and the flesh of the mighty, the flesh of horses and of their riders, the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, great and small. This is pretty standard battle imagery um, for the time and even up, to the, up through the Middle Ages and then back several hundreds or thousands of years as well. Uh, the idea here is that when the, the battle happens, there's going to be a lot of corpses on the field and the birds are going to feed on them. Okay, that's, that's the picture here. Um, uh, this last year, my daughter got a deer tag and we hunted like crazy. And then finally, we, we were able, she was able to get a deer and uh, the sun was going down. And so we're, we're taking the animal apart, quartering it and you know, getting the legs and all the meat off the ribs. And we left the, the rib cage and the innards out there. I don't typically eat innards, but uh, um, I did offer her a bite of the heart. She didn't take it. Um, but uh, so it gets dark and we pack everything out, make our way back to the truck. And I get home and I realize I had set my gloves down on my pack and actually my watch as well. And I, they fell off and I left them out there. So I had to go back out the next day. And here's the, the rib cage and the innards of the deer. And there were birds all over it. And that was one deer carcass. So the idea here is death. Um, those who are warring against God will receive their just due. Um, and the birds will feast on them. Then I saw the beast, verse 19, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the horse and against his army. This is the battle of Armageddon. But the beast was taken prisoner along with the false prophet who had performed the signs in its presence. He deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds ate the fill of their flesh. And so you have a, a complete picture of, a, excuse me, a picture of complete victory over the army of the beast. And then the Antichrist, the false prophet, and their followers are destroyed. The Antichrist and the false prophet, they receive 
a severe but deserved punishment. They're thrown alive into the lake of fire. The idea is that their judgment is severe and there's tremendous anguish associated with it. Um, but we don't see what happens to Satan yet, right? If you remember, there's Satan, the false prophet, and the Antichrist. The false prophet and the Antichrist are taken care of here at the, the battle of Armageddon, never to rise again or anyone like their type. Satan, well, we just have to wait till next week to see what God does with him. And so as, as we walk away from this passage, um, what I want to challenge your imagination again. Um, Jesus should be our hope. And, and this might be a hard hope to have because what we're hoping for is his return, that he comes back, that he gathers his church, he comes for us, that this period of great tribulation takes place and the world through the nation of Israel, is called to repentance one more time. God fulfills his promises to Abraham and to David. And then he finally returns with his church for this battle to destroy evil. And then I'll give you the spoiler alert. Chapter 20, Satan is bound for a thousand years. Jesus rules literally from Jerusalem for a thousand years. This is the viewpoint I'm sharing with you. There are different viewpoints on this. Uh, but in the end, Jesus returns and he wins. But in my hope for him returning... I'm also saying that those who are against him should receive the due penalty of their course of their life. And so it's kind of bittersweet. And that's what the prophets talk about when Jeremiah ate the scroll, when Ezekiel ate the scroll. They said that it was bittersweet. That God's program of saving those who trust in him and condemning those who don't, it's bittersweet because we long for a place where there's no sin. We long for a place where there's no death. We long for a place without deception. We long for a place without corruption, without greed. We long for a place where everyone is cared for. But in order for that to happen, and this is where humanism fails every time, in order for that to happen, we need God to make us new and remove those who reject him. The world will never experience Unity, righteousness, goodness on a complete level until God does that. Now you and I can experience in our lives now, we can experience complete, the completeness of our person in Christ now. We can experience the goodness of his love now. We can experience all those things now with some limitation because of the world that we live in because of the flesh that we live in and its sinful tendencies. But my hope is for his return. He is the anchor of my soul. He is the rock of our salvation. He is and ever will be our life. Now, if you had to say, here's the, here's the fill in the blank. Blank is my life. Would you say Jesus if we weren't in church? Like if it's Thursday night and you've had a long week of work and you just got home and the kids are driving you nuts, would you say Jesus is my life? If, if the government was taking away our rights and causing us to do things that we didn't want to do, would you say Jesus is my life? If you were on vacation sitting by the ocean, and it was 85 degrees. Oh. <laughs> Would you say Jesus is my life? 
does it matter whether it's high or low when you say Jesus is my life? Or is it steady, consistent? Because he's steady and he's consistent. Is he your imagination of things to come? Pray with me. Our Father, we recognize who your Son is and what he's done for us. That he is the Christ, he is the Messiah. He is my Savior, my Redeemer who shed his blood and wears it on his robe so that my blood will not be there. He is the one with a a sword coming out of his mouth that cuts to the quick and shows me the areas of my life that are off. He is the righteous judge. He has the right to make war against sin and he is right when he makes war against sin. Father, will you help us have the imagination that longs for his return? Will you help us have the imagination that longs for those that we know and love and care about, for those that are our neighbor, for those that are even a stranger, to be on the right side of this battle? Give us a desire to share your word, the truth, the gospel of who your son is, the good news that in his first coming, he was humble, he was a servant, and he gave his life as a ransom for many. And that if we trust him, we are saved from the consequences of this chapter and find ourselves praising him instead. The Spirit of God, I ask now for those hearing this message that have not made a decision to trust your son, that you would work in their lives, you already have been, that you would work on their hearts, that you would work on their mind, that you would cause them to see their need of your son, of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, that they would trust in his redeeming work, that they would be rescued from their sin, and that they would choose to follow you forevermore. I pray that you would do that, Spirit of God. Would you help those of us who are saved to think like you? That you would captivate our imaginations. The imagination for ourselves, the imagination for our spouse, the imagination for our children, the imagination for our workplace and our community and our church, our state and our nation, this world that we live in. Will you help us to remember that you are our life, no matter the up or the down. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for tuning in and joining us today. We hope that this message encourages you to continue taking steps towards seeking and understanding God's truth. The dream is that Hilltop is a home for the growing family of God, and we're so glad that you are a part of the family.